What if the magic found in folklore existed today? Enter a world where witches, shapeshifters, and tricksters lurk in a park at a garage sale or in your favorite dive bar. Classic folk tales meet modern life in The Other Path podcast, a new fantasy drama series by Odyssey Theatre. Discover where magic lurks this fall on Spotify. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In 1943, a group of boys wandering the woodlands near Hagley Hall in Worcestershire in the West Midlands of England discovered the remains of an unknown woman stuffed inside a hollowed witch elm tree. Due to the war and increased movement around England, Identifying the body proved difficult. She might have been someone local, or she might simply have been passing through. To this day, her identity remains unknown. In 1944, however, mysterious graffiti began to adorn the walls of the West Midlands, reading, Who put Bella in the Witch Elm? This graffiti reignited interest, and the theories about her were plentiful. Was she a prostitute named Bella, who had disappeared while working on nearby Hagley Road? Or perhaps a local woman that quarrelled with a mysterious Dutchman after becoming drunk at the Littleton Arms pub? A few years ago, these were questions that were taken up by independent filmmaker Tom Lee Rutter of Carney Films. Tom is based in the West Midlands in the UK, and makes films of a fantastical and horror variety including the award-winning docu-horror film Bella in the Witch Elm. From Nazi spy rings to an occult ritual which required a human sacrifice to obtain a hand of glory, Bella in the Witch Elm explores all the theories popular in the years after the discovery of the body, as well as giving a close look at the police investigation and forensic examination. The film premiered in 2017, and it has set Tom on a path of further exploring Fortean, folkloric, supernatural and experimental themes in other works, including the featurette Dr. Bolden Cross, Beyond the Void, in 2019, and the upcoming feature film, The Pocket Film of Superstitions. The Folklore Podcast's film and theatre correspondent Tracy Nicholas met with Tom to discuss the mysterious case of Bella in the Witch Elm and his take on it. Okay, so I'm here with Tom Rudder, uh, the director of Bella in the Witch Elm. And uh, Tom, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. And looking forward to talking about the the film a little bit. Um, Can we kick it off with uh, having you tell a little bit about why this particular story appealed to you and what made you want to explore all of the different theories around it. Okay, so um, I'm, I was born and bred in the Black Country, which is in the West Midlands. Uh, they call it the Black Country because the Black Country was um, pretty much <clears throat> one of the, the, the forerunners of the uh, Industrial Revolution. Um, so it was big on, you know, coal mines, um, foundries and, you know, steel mills. And the flag itself is a big chain to represent all the chain makers. And um, so that's the black country. Um, there's a lot of down to earth, salt of the earth type people, the black country folk. They're very uh, much to the point. So um, in particular, I always use an example. My, grand, my grandma, uh, she would. On the one hand, she would kind of bring me back down to her through a good old, you know, slap around the face <laughs> to say, you know, don't be so saft, she'd say. Don't be so, don't be so bloody saft. And, but then on the other hand, they'd be so superstitious. You know, they'd talk about ghosts that they used to see or even commune with. And that always just was just always just a strange balance for me. And um, I'd think, well, they're so down to the point and, you know, very, uh, 
very blunt but on the other hand they totally believe in the afterlife and they believe in ghosts and they believe in and they see and they they claim to see all these things and who am i to uh, question that you know yeah. so on so as a natural um naturally i was brought up on ghost stories and um and things like that you know my mom would read to me and my brother about Bally rectory and um all the all this unexplained phenomena and it would just you know set our imaginations alight even though we'd be absolutely terrified <laughs> so you, you know it's, it's not hard to imagine that you know you, you wouldn't go far without finding a place that's supposedly haunted and um so when the bella mystery became known to me it it was just that perfect chance to make a film about that black, black country heritage really and what I was brought up on, that type of mindset, you know, I wanted to make something that was plain salt of the earth and, you know, also very spooky. And, you know, I, I don't think anything would uh, encapsulate my background more, to be honest. And I was living with a friend who uh, basically brought my attention to the graffiti. And um, and that was, to me, that was just the clincher. It was, it, it was because it immediately had its roots in um, urban gothic because, it, you know, you think of Clive Barker's The Forbidden and things like that. And you think, wow, that's, um, it's got this roots in this urban gothic. How it's like, you know, it, it's this ominous kind of question that's you know, spread across the walls in these industrial towns. And that just really set me, you know, set my imagination like Then I decided to look into the mystery. Okay. And that's when I found out that there were theories of witchcraft involved and espionage. It was really just, wow, just a full package of amazing elements. And, mm -hmm. and well, needless to say, I just fell down the rabbit hole. So when I kind of brought this story back to my folks, I'd speak to my nan about it and I'd speak to my mother about it. And it turns out, yeah, the, Bella's all, the Bella mystery has always been in the backdrop of their lives. My nan uh, and her friends as kids, they went up to Hagley Woods to look for Bella, you know, uh -huh. and, and, you know, people's parents would punish them. Um, uh, or, 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 you know, if they were being naughty, they'd tell them, look, if you don't behave, I'll stuff you in the tree with Bella, you know. <laughs> so it was really part of the fabric of, um, of, of Black Country culture. And, you know, the, the, the graffito, it just set me off on that ominous kind of little journey to find out what it was all about. So, and that's, yeah, that's what happened, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, even without all of the theories about how it came to be, it's such a strange story anyway, where, you know, like what an odd way to hide a body, right? Um, yeah. Stuffed in the tree like that. And, and you know, I, when I was watching, I, I thought, you know, what kind of strength would you have to have to like drag someone up? And, you know, um, and, and I thought you explored that really, really well. It was, it was very interesting. Thank you. Well, yeah, absolutely, because, you know, if you think she's already dead and rigor mortis is starting to set in and whatnot, like you said, it's a very elaborate way to hide a body, especially if they could just throw it in a cut or like an ally something. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, so I put a shout-out in the, in the, you know, in the newspaper, the local newspapers, and the, I, was so, I was inundated with people who were phoning up. Some of them would be, like, uh, anonymous, and they'd say, I don't want to leave my name, but I want to tell you that I found a revolver on the sidewalk, you know, by Hagley Woods around 1945, and, and wow. you know, yeah yeah and then you'd have um someone phone up saying i used to know someone in cradleaf because cradleaf was one of the black country towns which you know black country towns all touch each other once you get into the black country there's and then you get into hagley um which is just after Stourbridge, and then it becomes a lot more rural you see so that's when you start crossing over into worcestershire uh, and there's a lot more rurality over there, which gives it that kind of quaint pastoral, which brings in that kind of folky, folk horror element to things. Mm -hmm. But in the black country, all these towns touch each other. And you know, people get in touch saying, oh, yeah, I used to read the Black Country Bugle and there'd be a big story out in there. And, and there was this chap I knew around the time. And I, I can't really say for certain, but he was into some really dark arts, you know. And it, all this was just fueling my imagination because none of them were giving you any definite answers, but they're always... They were just building those little blocks towards the big mystery of it all, you know. Well, I mean, that's the interesting part about 
um, doing something that's more of an urban legend because there are people who feel personally connected to it. It's not just you know a story from hundreds of years ago that has been passed down. But I, I think it's fascinating that people came to you with their you know all their theories on absolutely, and I mean, that's what's so amazing about it is that it is a piece of modern folklore. You know, it's only as old as World War Two. You know, nineteen. Right. You know, uh, the, the body was uh, discovered in nineteen forty-three. So. And then, you know, the strength of that as a folktale now, it, it's quite remarkable, really. And um, it's inspired so many people uh, in creative ways. I mean, um, we are, we put on, we put on Bella themed nights, you know, where, oh, where where poets would turn up and, you know, they'd, they'd write whole little chapbooks on, on the Bella mystery and that would be their interpretations. And then people would write their songs about it. So they're, they'd be all brought together um you know for these events and we, it'll all be to uh, celebrate the mystery you know uh -huh. which, is, which is amazing <laughs> yeah i i loved the um i don't know poem children's story rhyme that you used at the beginning that that was really compelling um and how did you develop that well, that uh, that was my um, my good friend Craigus, who um, writes a lot of the music for my films. He okay. actually scored one of the silent um, film scores. For, we did an alternative uh, silent film version, which uh, adds some alternative scores, just to really kind of soak up the atmosphere even further. Um, and and Craigus is he's such a wordsmith that I said, look, can you can you do a a passage from the perspective of the uh, the disembodied spirit, you know, of Bella, mm -hmm. and make it all encompassing about her situation, about you know what it mean, what she means to the the world now, and she's given herself over to a world of culture, you know, and um, that's what I wanted to do really is invoke the more poetic kind of uh, aspects of the mystery, mm -hmm. uh, because it's quite amazing how many people you get connected with once you're kind of down the rabbit hole, so to speak, who want to solve the mystery. Whereas I never really wanted to do that, you know, it, it's it's magical as it is. Yeah, that, that's interesting because as I was watching, um, you know, of course, you, you get the finite story of the boys finding the skeleton, right? And I kind of thought that all of the different theories were going to come together at some way and 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 so it was it was it was great because i was along for the ride the whole time because i wasn't sure what was happening next and i kept you know wanting um that sort of like neat little bow to to tie it up but it it, it got me in the spirit of you know telling those those urban legend stories that it was just all of these ideas and all of these possibilities and it wasn't like okay well now we're going to fictionalize the end of it for you it, it was just nice to hear all the different ideas yeah that was definitely the the intent was to, to celebrate uh, the art of storytelling and the folktale itself um because you know it would it even matter if it was sold now to anybody uh, solved now to anybody you know i mean some people uh, that's that's how they see the mystery. They see it as uh, their their chance to be a detective and to to really because um, what what pe some people have been doing um, in particular um, an author some authors uh, Andrew Spark for one he writes he's written a couple of books on the mystery and the most extensive ones are by Alex Merrill and his father Pete Merrill um, and they actually start you know uh, started investigations into Hagleywood where they could trace the DNA from you know roots of trees back to who she could possibly have been oh. which is amazing which is fine and fantastic and it's great that people are really still dedicated to that cause but myself I just took those fantastical elements and, and embellished those you know I really wanted yeah. to celebrate the the rich the richness of how fantastical those these strands were and I love the fact that they just didn't go anywhere it was just all speculation so in, in a sense I created a documentary that had completely fictitious passages. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's great because that's the way these stories develop. And, and it is like seeing, you know, the folklore develop around it in real time. Um, and so, and, and you know, it's it's interesting to, to me of the, the different kinds of theories, you know, some are very, you know, cut and dried. This is a, you know, war, 
you know, a spy issue, and some are, are very fantastical. Um, without I'm trying not to give away any spoilers, because part of the fun of watching the film is discovering as you go what these all these different you know theories are and how they came to be. Well, it mentions a uh, in the in the film mentions a Gestapo agent called Joseph Jacobs, who was like the last man to be executed at the Tower of London, and his um, his granddaughter was it or some she got in touch and. Uh, she, she wanted to watch the film and she wanted to put me right into a, a couple of little facts and of who he was. And um, and again, it was just like, well, he's just a very tenuous part of this story. But what he brought to it was still an interesting dimension. Mm-hmm. So it is just again, it's um, people have all got their own, um, you know, their own perspectives to add to the to the whole mix. And none of it will actually add, add up as a whole, particularly. It's just amazing to see the variations you know yeah I mean I for me I felt like the the very like possible like grounded in you know our our everyday experience as opposed to something a little more supernatural those that that kind of story in here was just as compelling as the ones that are more fun to you know (laughs) think about the like the the witchcraft and the voodoo and the black magic but but I felt like you know each story really had you know weight to it and 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 so I see why people you know who are creating these are are, you know telling their theories absolutely I mean I could have really have just carried on you know and made uh given it at least a good another hour I mean you look at all these dense Netflix series that come out today that is as well as the perfect uh, perfect material for such a show because you could really spread that out over six or seven hour long episodes and really, really dissect it. I mean, um, uh, I, I like I brought in the Charles Walton murder. Have you ever heard of the Charles Walton um, Lower Quinton murder? I, I haven't. No. Well, well, there was an early um, BBC play for today called uh, Robin Redbreast, which was um, a kind of precursor to the Wicker Man, and that was based on a mur- on a ritualistic murder that happened in. Um, in Lower Quinton in Warwickshire, and and, and basically, um, um, an old farmer, farmer or farmhand even, was found um, found with his body uh, pinned to the earth with a pitchfork, and there was a cross carved on his chest. And um, uh, the locals, you know, they were very um, hush hush about what went on there, and a lot of people believed it to be a witch killing. But that was only 40 miles away from Hagley, you see. So for me, that was just, wow, join those dots. And this is the landscape we're living in, you know. You've got witch killings going on everywhere. (laughs) Um, So can you talk? I noticed during the course of the film, it was, you know, largely black and white. Um, but I felt like there, at least for me, there were three fairly distinct styles. You know, I felt like there was a sort of, newsreel like 1940s newsreel style there was a little bit more of a creepy ominous style um can you can you talk a little bit about what those different feels were for the different kinds of theories sure thing um absolutely um well for a start i wanted to acknowledge the fact that i was making a film uh in what 2017 2016 i was shooting it um so you know uh, anything goes really in this postmodern world and how you p- approach cinema. So I was, you know, very much inspired a lot by um, silent cinema, in particular Hexen, because it's a no-brainer with Hexen. And and then obviously you have um, pseudo documentaries such as uh, which um, Wisconsin Death Trip, which mm-hmm. you know um, illustrates some passages found in uh, uh, newspaper articles which are featured in the book, and yet they were just this kind of uh, really creepy but yet gentle and beautiful, um, just, uh, you know, um, text of, of passages and vignettes. And it was all in this really eerie black and white. And I thought, well, you know, Bella itself, the whole, the whole um, whatever, whatever went on is a, a faded memory. It's all a haze and everything else is just a feverish uh, run of, um, of theories. So I wanted to give off the, the, the idea of that it was a fever dream or a, a hazy memory so a lot of the um a lot of the shots in particular when we see Bella Spectre towards the end I I kind of covered the lens with um sweet wrappers <laughs> so it would um you know so it would kind of uh, distort the image somewhat and give it this kind of really kind of hazy dreamy bleary eyed feel to it 
And then when we come into the 50s, uh, no, sorry, the, the, sorry the, the 40 with the munitions and the espionage, um, I wanted to give it a bit of a, more of a glow so it looked like those real beautiful soft focus films in the 40s when the light, when, when the light would hit something, it would glow. So there's a little, there's, there's, there's elements of 40s cinema in there, silent cinema, but then just uh, whatever I can kind of, you know, do to kind of enforce this kind of dreamlike, feverish mm-hmm. kind of a- atmosphere, you know, and there was a lot of overlays going on as well. So it, it enabled me to just play with this kind of, you know, dreamlike slash, you know, trippy textures just to kind of, yeah, just to kind of give you something that was otherworldly, really, because everything is all just speculative and, all a thought and a dream so and that's how it should have come across without that kind of clarity really yeah I I did I felt like things sort of started clear in a lot of scenes and Mm. then they kind of narrowed to a little bit more of a tunnel vision Um, and and that usually happened when things got mysterious or creepy and and I really I I loved that because I found myself like leaning in you know because it was like as it was getting smaller I was getting drawn into it so thank you yeah there was definitely a lot of claustrophobia in there because I use a lot of um vignettes and um Mm -hmm. and iris wipes and whatnot so that really did kind of narrow the um the picture down to what you're focusing on and sometimes that's just an expression or it is just like an item or an object or Oh, it's something that it's, that's quite spooky and horrific. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's something I've uh, really gone to town with. You know, it's something I'm still experimenting with now because I just feel like we're, we're in an age now of so much HD clarity and we've gone 4K, 8K, and I want to go the other way, you know. I want to strip that back and yep. I, wanna, I, want, I want films to be able to evoke, you know, um, uh, a, a kind of dream state at, um, atmosphere and, and and just an atmosphere in general mood pieces you know right. I, I, we still we still need mood pieces well I, I feel like you know with the hyper clarity um it, it, you don't it doesn't engage your imagination as much um and that's what was you know fun about well it was one of the fun things about this is that it it did it got me going and it's like Ooh, I wonder, is that, are those two things connected? Maybe they are, you know, it, it sort of got me in that mindset, whereas if you just handed everything and been like, here's exactly what it is, I wouldn't have engaged in the same way. No, no, this is it. I, I, it's all about promoting the unknown as well, because that's what fires our imaginations the most, you know. So why would we want to tie anything up and um, and give people clarity? Even in the scenes themselves, it's like, we're not uh we might be showing what we're showing but we might might not be showing what we're showing sort of thing because you know we've all stumbled upon strange things going on in the woods in the past uh, i'd like to think we all have anyway <laughs> so you know you're not quite sure what you're seeing sometimes i mean right. you know I've, I've seen um i've seen strange things in the past where I, I generally can't trust my own eyes you know so it's nice to be able to just throw these ideas out there and um and to really just uh just create a sense of unease and wonder you know mm-hmm. and the best way to go about it yeah absolutely and and you know the the whole feeling of the like being claustrophobic you know it it kept you in that state of like this you know this tiny space where this poor woman's body was um and and i think that's part of what you know has people still you know thinking about it and making you know exploring these theories and wanting to to you know that that's why it's interesting and thank you yeah i mean you know and i always like to kind of underscore those little those moments where it goes into a sense of sinister um passage and then uh, kind of throw you into the next scene with just the sound of bird song you know so there's a there's a, you know there's a peaceful surface uh, above what's going on underneath and we all love the strange and the sinister what goes on beneath the surface of what we see as a normal facade really don't we so mm-hmm. yeah um but yeah it's um it was such an adventure making it and i have to admit you know the less the less kind of romantic um uh, reason why I uh, in, enforced a lot of these techniques was because we literally had no money as well and the best way to to convey our ideas is to uh, really strip back and you know limit ourselves to what we are seeing mm-hmm. and then it masks the seams you know not all of them admittedly but it, it, you're also creating an atmosphere with nothing so you're able to take away what's around you and just home in on 
the slightest of things because sometimes you'll turn the camera left or right and you're faced with a modern atrocity that would not look good on camera but with the power of um you know framing and vignettes you can you can really home in on what's still there you know and what you can what you can lyricize with it well and i think that you can um mask some you know lazy filmmaking with a big budget um, and you know you just start pouring money into it you can make you know have beautiful vistas and you know do all of that and it's you know a way to you know have people be like oh that was that was really great I was so into it it was so beautiful whereas you know this was about the story and I think when you do you know you don't have all those added layers that a ton of money will bring you I think that that you have to you have to get really serious about the story and and how you're going to you know, convey the emotions that you want and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. I think what really grounded the film all in all was the, our narrator because he was actually, he, he, he used to live around the corner from where I grew up. So his accent was very um, familiar to me and I couldn't have done the film um, without a black country narrator because his, his accent is legitimate black country. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people would meet my uncles. I mean, my wife doesn't understand a lot of my family <laughs> from the black country. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, some, some, of the, some of the accents are so broad. It is, it's a fascinating um, surviving strand of old English, essentially. Uh, so I, uh, he really kind of brought the film down to earth, which, was, which enabled me to get more experimental with the visuals because then, you know, the, the experimentalism of the film would not just... Um, alienate the audience then because our narrator kept us grounded i wanted to give it that sense of uh, you know meeting someone in a pub who uh, who was a really good recanter who could just tell you tell you the story right and you know i i really liked his uh delivery style because he sort of he he lent to the film this kind of gleeful telling scary stories around a campfire where like he's just ex as excited to scare you as you want to be scared and and he really has that energy when when he's talking. absolutely he has this warmth so it's like even though you're creeped out you still feel quite safe with him you know he, yep yeah, it gives you that kind of quaint kind of um, scare where, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, let me build this, you know, space and we're going to explore some creepy stuff in here. But don't worry, I'm going to be here for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he was perfect. Absolutely perfect. You know, and I, I, I really can't, can't thank uh, Tati Dave enough for, for, for doing that for, for me because um, it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Yeah, he, he definitely made it a lot more fun. I can't imagine a, a different narrator because because he had exactly the right, um, you know, tone to it all. And I, again, it was also a conscious decision because, again, I was making a film with no money and uh, it was a mixture of um, of uh, budding actors and just friends, you know, and anyone who kind of looked right for the part and whatever we could get. But I knew that the film would potentially be cheapened by... Um, less than um, stellar performances. So you take dialogue out of the scenario and just let the narrator do the talking, the narrator who can deliver, and then all they are then are a series of um, of expressions, you know. So it, it kind of, I think it it survives the, the kind of the trappings of a lot of low-budget filmmaking, no-budget filmmaking by going down that route, you see. And I, I, yeah, I think that was probably a, a good move on that part, you know, to take out the acting... Yeah, and it also, it drew me kind of into a being in the past mindset, because it did have a little bit of a silent film kind of feel to it, um, where, you know, the, the music was giving you clues about, okay, you know, you're in a, you're, you know, boys running around in the woods, and, so, and then it gets creepy. And <laughs> so it just, but having just like the narration and the voiceover, um, it, it really took me took me in my mind to a, a different time and so that I thought was very effective well thank you I really, I really appreciate that I mean you know uh, and I, I I do often wonder whether it'd be the 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 most successful film I made because you know it, <laughs> it, it, it kind of does what it sets out to do and because it's got such a broad appeal with the mystery itself and then there's lovers of the you know the burgeoning folk horror genre as well as just people who enjoy um, indie films but you know I feel like it kind of 
attract several different circles in that mm -hmm. respect. And I think as a result, people it will always get an audience, you know, mm -hmm. which I'm very proud of, you know. Okay, now I have to ask this question. Um, so there's a whole bunch of theories. We've talked about it. Do you have a pet theory yourself? Do you have a favorite? I did not uh, single any out at what, until I met with um, Pete Merrill. Uh, Pete Merrill and his son, uh, they investigated the, um, you know, uh, the mystery on a scholarly level to the point where they released two really extensive books. The titles were, the volume one was Who Put Better, Who Put Better in the Witch Elm, volume one, The Crime Scene Revisited, and then they released volume two, A Crime Shrouded in Mystery. And I really recommend those books. But I actually met Pete at the Littleton Arms, uh, which is the pub featured in the story, you know. And and obviously it's been done up since, so it doesn't look like a quaint old pub anymore. It looks quite like a, a flash eatery now, which is a shame. But and that's where Pete and I got chatting. And Pete uh, told me pretty much about the... Um, I mean, he's... We, people say to few, but Pete is pretty convinced that this is... a what happened really is that she was a gypsy a traveler and um because back then um you know it was always in the information that there was no one reported missing from the neighboring towns well the traveler communities they would you know they would be on their own they would be on their own you know they would right. they would they would make camp nearby and something happened and and this traveler got killed there was reports of a a, a traveler running through one of the towns blooded the one time and information was known to the police and brought to their desk but as with most cases um insufficient evidence meant they just didn't care to follow it up and close the book on it mm -hmm. and um that was that you know and it's very likely that it was a, a traveler and um you know um even the the, the, the pub the it was called the badger set when i was growing up but it used to be called the gypsy's tent because there was a lot of gypsy camps around that area at that time mm -hmm. and um and she could have come from one of these camps that had made camp nearby and something happened amongst their own politics right. and she wound up dead and to me that kind of gave it the most you know for me that was the most plausible um Theory. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, um, that would have been a very marginalized community um, mm -hmm. because people were suspicious and there was, you know, a, a lot of, um, you know, fear that they were going to come and, you know, steal. And, and so I think it, it does make it pretty plausible that the police wouldn't care that much to investigate it because Absolutely. it's like, that's not our problem. You know, we're, we're here. We live in this town. This is our town. They're going to be gone. So let them go. And they're very marginalised today, so, you know, and you can imagine how it was back then, um, even more so, so you're absolutely right, and, and there was a war on as well, so, you know, they just did not care to chase it up, and mm -hmm. um, to me, that is like, yeah, okay, that sounds very much like what, what, what may well have happened, but... You know, we still haven't got the uh, the defining uh, evidence to, to put that into place to, to say so. So as far as I'm concerned, it's still a it's still an open book. <laughs> well, and, you know, it brings up an interesting point that I did notice about the language that you used. Um, and it, it did feel like you were using language from the era that the film was set, like using the word gypsy, you know, which... Yeah. As we get, you know, more PC, it's, you know, you know, can't use that well, word. It's a slur. They're travelers. They're, you know. Um, absolutely. Yeah. But, but that mean, was the, was that was how it was then. Yeah. Well, the reason I uh, I did that, that was actually lifted verbatim from one of the newspaper articles that we um, that we uh, we based it on because uh, the framing device has the um, Byford Quester Jones, the, um, the 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 reporter for the, the Expression of Star. He did a 10 year follow up on the mystery, like I think it was three extensive articles. And I went up to Wolverhampton to one of the resource um, centers where the, you had those scanners where you'd look through old newspaper yeah. articles. And I, I must have spooled through so many reels to try and find um, to try and find these articles. And I did find them. So, mm -hmm. And then I just lifted chunks of those articles to shape the narration essentially. And that was one of them. The, the, the theory of the traveler was when he would go to St. Canelm's Church and speak with um, the man tending to the garden outside. And those were the words that he said to Quester Jones. 
and I wanted to lift that again, just like you said, to 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 give it that air of authenticity and and to just kind of mark what was written and what what's been said, you know. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know when when we're trying to make something appropriate for our time, it's mm. it's takes it out of context, it takes the story out of context, you know, mm -hmm. because if it had happened now, you know, they would have been doing DNA tests, they would have been, you know, there, there would have been um, a different kind of, um, you know, way of thinking about it. And if, if the police were just like, hey, you know, not our problem, that's their own community, that would never happen now. So I think it's important to understand a story within the context of like when it happened and how people's thinking were at the time. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was something that was um, on my mind throughout making it, but um, I, I believe uh, the narrator has family in the traveller community, as well as um, the fact that uh, if you'll see some footage in it with the, um, the Vardos just uh, in a procession, uh, the, the wagons, and um, that was a procession into a, um, a festival that's held three times a year where the traveller community come together and they have a, a knees up, you know. And um, someone just filmed the, the, the horse-drawn procession coming into the field. And I asked the man who filmed it if I could use it in the film. And he was more than happy to let me use it. So the last thing I wanted to do was upset the, the community because, you know, it was all about, like you say, it was just, it's all about just instilling a sense of time and place and what's, uh, you know, a frame of mind and, a, you know, a frame of, um, a frame of mind of a time really concerning something that was, that was unspeakable for you know quiet little parish civil parishes you know something that's you know far too sinister and and too something out of place you know yeah definitely um I, it was great to hear you talk about Quester. Is, that's how you say it, Quester? I, I believe it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I weren't quite sure. Uh, again, me and Tatty Day, we, we would um, sit there and deliberate over how certain things were said, you know. And I said, well, Tatty, you know, you've got your own you've got your own way of speaking anyway. So just go with what you feels right, you know. <laughs> yeah, he, that was a fascinating character, um, how he just, like, couldn't let it go and kept, you know, trying to figure out what had happened. I, I really liked him. Yeah, that's it. It's just nice to create some form of thread that brings these vignettes together, because let's face it, a lot of them were just fra fragments, you know, and obviously from a from a production standpoint, it was brilliant for me because I was able to bring people together for a day or two and then just wave them off and then bring in the new set of performers and then just worry about the narrator joining all that together. But Questa was also the visual that brought that together because he'd go from one sequence to another and take us there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, can we now move on to the companion piece, The Midnight Hour? Oh, certainly. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, so my first question is, um, which did you develop first? Well, um, so I premiered Bella at our local town hall, Kidderminster Town Hall, July 2017. And um, one of the uh, one of the actors in the film, he brought along his friend and, you know, he was wearing this khaki kind of uh, jacket and he was smoking a pipe and he had this big moustache and his hair was slicked back. And I was like, wow, who's your friend? <laughs> <laughs> he introduced me to him and I just immediately thought he would look good as this kind of this TV personality, this paranormal investigator type. And uh, we just kind of got chatting. We'd go for drinks. And we talk about developing this character called Dr. Bolden Cross. And now, you know, in the run up to Bella and throughout those years anyway, I was just devouring all this, um, this old uh, Fortean kind of and paranormal TV from like the 70s and 80s that were usually on, you know, uh, ATV, ITV, BBC. And a lot of them existed as really like kind of rough VHS rips on YouTube because some of them still haven't had uh, legitimate releases. I mean, I know like labels like the BFI and Network, they clean a lot of them up and release them, but some of them still haven't seen the light of day. And some of them are very esoteric, you know. They And back then they had, um, you know, people had conviction on television that be talking about the dark arts and there was a you know, very prevalent kind of interest in Wiccan activities and witchcraft and things like this. But um, they took it very, very seriously on these shows. And I love that, you know, mm -hmm. I yeah, love that. Yeah. So I really wanted to just recreate 
something like that. And going back to what I uh, going back to um, Robin Redbreath, the BBC play for today, which was about uh, which was based on the Charles Walton murder. Um, that was actually broadcasting colour, but because BBC, the BBC used to wipe a lot of these shows after they were broadcast, they could only find this black and white kind of um, really rough black and white copy. Okay. And that's the one that, that, that got released. And you can see when you watch it, the, the visual's got a lot of ghosting in it. Uh-huh. And, you know, so there's a kind of sort of fifth generation vibe about it all. And I love that because that's a texture in itself. And I just wanted to recreate that or see if I could recreate that. So, you know, I, I, I said to Dave, let's, let's write a piece. And then um, we went to Kidderminster Town Hall and we filmed it. And um, originally, uh, I was going to uh, get a distribution deal for Bella in the States. But the distributor wanted the Bella to be an hour long. And I wasn't willing to extend the film itself because I felt to do that would cheapen it and, you know, take away from what it is. So I thought, well, why not create the, this, um, this, 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 these passages with Dr. Bald and Cross as a bookend and release it like that. And we tried it like that. And again, it just didn't quite work in trying to add to something that's finished in my eyes. Mm-hmm. So once Bella was, um, once Bella was out there, um, Dave and I, Dave Pearl, who plays Dr. Bolden Cross, we decided to just write a whole film about Dr. Bolden Cross. So we created a, a half an hour film about his life and work and some of the sh- and included some of the shows he was in. We even included a scene of a, a sort of Hammer Horror-esque film that he starred in the once. And it was called A Coffin for Lady Dracula. And um and then we'd talk about how he died and how he promised his colleagues and friends that he would send a message back from the void. And the film ends in a seance. But the film starts with those black and white clips uh, of a show he did called The Midnight Hour. And I haven't used those clips since we tried to extend the Bella cut. And I thought, well, you know what? Let's take all that footage and create a whole episode of The Midnight Hour, but base it on the Bella mystery. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. So I thought it would be a nice addition to anyone who who, who got their copy of, of Bella and the Witch Helm. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched it after I watched Bella. And um, first of all, it is hilariously campy. I think it, it is so perfect. You get that 70s feel. It's sort of that over-the-top melodramatic, like, ooh, mystery. And um, so I, I think that you nailed it on the, the tone. Um, and and it is, it's so very different than, than Bella. But to me, it sort of added some depth because, you know, I'm in the States. So I was not familiar with any of this story and, and I didn't, you know, I went and researched a little after, but before I came in cold and, you know, watched it a couple of times. And then when I watched the midnight hour episode, um, it, it did add a different sort of depth for me because I was like, Oh, these stories really are real. And seeing the, you know, use, use some of the same images and it, it, but to have it, sort of be talked through what you know this mystery is in such a different kind of way than how you did it in Bella and the Witch Elm it it just it it made it fun and it sort of cemented some of those you know the the more witchcraft and black magic voodoo side of things that you know was a little more balanced in you know the other piece um, so, so yeah, it was, it was definitely a lot of fun. I, you've kind of answered all of my questions. About no, well, this. obviously the, the great thing about it was, is obviously back in the day, you know, when you tune into TV, you'd see a lot of, um, interesting people just talking on camera, you know, to each other or to the camera. Uh, so production wise, it was such, so sparse that you could, it was, you could just sit this guy in front of a camera and he would talk with conviction about all these esoteric interests that he has including, you know, the, the, the witchcraft, witch trials and, and just the old nature of folklore. So I thought, well, that's going to be relatively simple to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And Dave, Dave Pearl, he just had such conviction in saying it. He, I mean, he turned up wearing the turtleneck with the, with the you know, with the necklace. And yeah. and he, I didn't have to prompt him with that. He knew what who Dr. Bolden Cross was. And that's why we were just the perfect fit, you know. So, um 
And then I got my wife to play some sort of Bella historian <laughs> to sit and she's, she's talking to the camera just to break it up a little bit. But no, I really, um, it was just to further enforce that kind of spooky British kind of um, Fortean kind of uh, hauntological kind of fascination we all have with those kind of old shows now, you know. Yeah, and there's a lot of fans of those. And, and it's interesting because at this point, you know, anybody can make a video, right? Even if it's not great quality, but, you know, people are filming stuff all the time. But back then, you know, it was, you had to like get equipment that most people didn't have. And, you know, it, it was a more unusual person who would be doing that kind of work. And mm. so, you know, and, and of course that, that gorgeous, like big, heavy seventies furniture and, you know, like how dramatic he, he seems <laughs> in, you know, even how he's decorating and where he's, you know, placing himself. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was good fun. Um, all I can say about it is please, please consider making this a series because oh, I want to see Dave more of this. Dave would love to hear that. I mean, um, I will pass on a copy of um, Dr. Ball and Cross Beyond the Void and you can watch that and and then you get more Dr. Ball and Cross to enjoy because we consider another series he made further down the line called Worlds Beyond and that was his more, you know, his colour effort in the early, from the early 80s sort of thing and <laughs> So, you know, there's a lot to enjoy there. So I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll enjoy it, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if I can implore to, to <laughs> keep, keep that going, because I, I want more. I need more. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, uh, I'm making a follow-up film, which kind of em employs a lot of the same kind of visual style uh, as to Bella and the Witch Home. It's actually called The Pocket Film of Superstitions. Um, I didn't really want to kind of strike twice and find another really compelling folk tale or story to delve in. So I thought, well, you know how you used to get these books uh, of almanacs of, mm -hmm. of superstitions and, and things like this. So I thought, well, why not just make a film, one of those, a film version of one of those, you know. So it's a sprawling kind of series of vignettes of various superstitions through the ages, which gives me a chance to portray things like changelings fairies witches and mm -hmm. and you know and in very much the same kind of visual style but with a slightly more polished and obviously with a bit, bit, bit bigger budget as well but i'm thinking of getting dr bold across back to introduce something like that you know so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so watch this space <laughs> uh, okay so um for this, for the midnight hour, do you, do you have a favorite part of this one, or was it just all sort of a little fun ride the whole way, like it was for me? Oh, it was. It was. Uh, it was. The, I think for me, it was getting the texture right of um, how it was slightly ghosting the image. You know, you can see a slight overlap, and um, just the general graininess of it all. I had to get that right because, you know, I, I am a sucker for using. Um, grain plugins i mean if i had the money i would be shooting on film but because i don't have that kind of money i have to convince myself to make it look filmic enough you know uh -huh. and sometimes you can tell that it's just a digital offering with that kind of grain pot on top of it so i thought i really want to strip back that again just get rid of all that hdness and soften it to the point where i believe that is a kind of old transmission from yesteryear and that's that's my favourite part of it was just pulling that off, I guess, really. And the score itself, um, some of it was actually um, pre-made music, but some of it was me on like a a virtual theremin, fer um, just kind of wailing it up and down and just recording minutes of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Which yeah. added to the over-the-topness, you know. <laughs> yeah, I it, it, I was thinking like with the sound, I was thinking that it was you know those instruments they had in the 70s where you just kind of move around them yeah and... absolutely a big pheromone you know yeah, where... yeah. oh sorry pheromone I, I yeah yeah that I mean and immediately like I didn't know the name of it but I was like oh that that's that thing they did in the 70s that's you know it's perfect well you know in the in beyond the void we kind of um we hint that he had like uh, because he, he he ended up forming um his own institute called 
the Paratheological and Metaphysical Institute, the PMRI. And it was under the PMRI where they had their own little TV production wing. And that's where he made the Midnight Hour and, and Worlds Beyond. And then we hinted that he had his own little sonic sound studio in there, which was our play, play on the BBC Radiophonic yeah. Workshop. So instead of Delia Derbyshire, you had Celia Clampton and stuff like that, you know. Nice, very nice. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you'll see it when you see the film, you know. Oh, I can't wait. I, I'm very excited about that. Um, okay, so is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to share? Oh, uh, you know, this this kind of stuff can just go sprawling off in so many different directions. Uh, <laughs> and, I, I, you know, I fell down the Bella rabbit hole and it got to a point where people would still get in touch after the film was, you know, out there. And I just couldn't throw myself back into it because it was so taxing, you know. And um, uh, a, a paranormal investigator called Jane Harris, she made a documentary around the same time and hers was a lot more investigative and there was a lot more kind of theories being posed there and um and you know evidential photos and whatnot which is well worth a look um but i just thought well i've made my statement i I didn't want to i didn't want to solve the case i just wanted to celebrate the unknown and i just feel like every film i make it's all about just you know celebrating the unknown really so i just felt like i'd have my time with it i still absolutely adore it but i it was so all, it was so consuming, all consuming that I just had to back away for a while, you know. Right. Oh, of course. So. Um, so, where can people access, you know, these two films or your other work? Oh, um, we've got a Bella and the Witch on Blu-ray, which comes with the Midnight Hour plus a silent movie cut that we did. I just again because. I know the film was set in the 40s onwards, but I just love silent cinema. And I thought, well, you know, I'm making this film in 2016, 17. Anything goes right. So let's do a silent movie cut with intertitles. And that's got three uh, scores uh, to choose from. And you get an A3 poster as well. And it's a lovely set. Really can't recommend it enough, but I would say that. Uh, we're selling that on our own big cartel. Uh, that's on the Facebook. You can get that on the Facebook. So there's a Bell okay. in the Witch on page on Facebook. There's a... Uh, I'm on Twitter as Tom Lee Ritter. Uh, so yeah, you can you can find me, uh, and from there you can find the link to purchase it, and and um, with information on the the upcoming films, uh, the Pocket Film of Superstitions is still in production. Where we're a lot more, you know, we've gone a bit more all out on that one. It's taken me quite a long time to make, but I'm blaming you know I'm blaming other kind of external forces like the lack of money and you know, the pandemic and stuff like this. Little um, things. It's the little yeah, things. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, but we're, we're lucky that we've got uh, some cult film royalty in that one. We've got Caroline Monroe playing a high priestess witch and Lynn Lowry's in it as well, doing a, a sequence about um, superstitions involving hand gestures and things like this. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah. So from those links, you can find out more about what's what's coming and how you can get your hands on and Bella and... And the exploits of Dr. Bolden Cross. Great. I'm looking forward to seeing more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate it. Right, thank you it. so much. Thanks to Tom and Tracy for that discussion on Bella in the Witch Elm. The original film was recently remastered onto a Blu-ray release with extra features. And you can buy a copy by visiting Tom's website at carneyfilms.blogspot.com. You can also find Tom on Twitter and Facebook by searching for Carney Films. That's C-A-R-N-I-E, Carney. I'll put the links on the episode page for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website. If you've never done so, please spare us a few seconds to leave a rating or a review for the Folklore Podcast on whichever platform you listen. Positive ratings help new audiences to find us. After seven seasons... The Folklore Podcast remains proudly independent. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to keep going, and a great way to do this is via our Patreon page, which will earn you access to exclusive supporter content. We're hoping to revamp this over the winter period in order to bring you even more rewards for your support, so it's a great time to join if you can, and you can do so for as little as £1 a month. It's also possible to make one-off donations and buy books and other merchandise via our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. You can also support us by simply sharing our episodes widely with others. Please do. 
and don't forget to tag us in anything interesting. You can find us on Twitter at FolklorePod. Thanks for listening. See you next time.